I didn't have cable. I only had 12 channels. TBS was one of them. I did watch the billing vault. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. This month, we're doing something new. Uh, we tend to end our months usually with director episodes, like last week's episode on Stanley Donnan. And we've also done special months on directors like Peter Weir and Tony Scott. But this month, we're adding kind of a new type of director series, I guess you could say, in that each week this month, we'll be talking about a specific director with this one the kind of overarching theme is we're talking about a specific female filmmaker each month each week and many of our director episodes have been male dominated and we have a lot of female filmmakers we don't uh that don't always fit into genre categories uh that we pick or in some cases like today's director don't have enough films to cover a whole month but there's a lot of female filmmakers out there that we love and like talking about in the films they make so we want to kind of give a whole month to that uh, for, for August. Um, so it'll be a little bit different and we're trying to work through it, but kind of start off with, um, we usually do an intro for a genre intro for the director, but this, I guess we should probably just kind of give a little bit of history of, of some female filmmakers in cinema, but also kind of the ones we really love that we aren't talking about, but also kind of the some, some that we're talking about today. Um, because a lot of them can fit into their own genre and, and some of them don't have a genre at all. Um, so, yeah. So, like, I think when I think about uh, early female filmmakers, it really people don't realize how much it starts really at the beginning of like silent era of cinema with with uh, filmmakers like uh, Alice Guy Blaché, who was a silent filmmaker, who was, I think, the first female filmmaker of all time and actually owned her own studio. Um, and then you have people like Dorothy Arzner, who was uh, kind of early Hollywood director who did movies like Dance Girl Dance, who ended up being Francis Ford Coppola's mentor at UCLA. So there's just a lot of different directors out there. So, so Thomas, um, I guess who are some. I mean, how, how do you want to do this? <laughs> uh, like, who are some that you enjoy or like, why do you think it's important that we're doing this this month, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, something we try and highlight a lot on this podcast is obviously genre and a lot of the directors that we've talked about is because they have a lot of films within a specific genre and i think it's important this week or this month to tackle female directors specifically because we everyone is aware that it is a lot more difficult for female directors in this industry we talked about it last month with uh julie tamor and kind of the way that the her, you know, the studio that was her own business partner tried to tank her project because she wasn't, you know, rolling over for them. And, and, and especially how kind of gender can be weaponized against these filmmakers. And so you got, you have to fully recognize that it is like opportunity and repetition that lets these directors work within the same genre. Not only do they need to have like a lot of projects to kind of establish themselves within a genre, but they also you know, have to be given a decent amount of creative control, which not, you know, is is a little is is not as readily available to some of these female filmmakers. Some of the female filmmakers we'll be talking about this month aren't, you know, haven't really been able to just kind of stand their ground and only make the films they're interested in. Um, yeah. You know, we'll be talking the specifically the filmmaker we're talking about this week does 
make films that are obviously very important to her, but it also takes her a really long time to get those projects off the ground. So some of the more prolific filmmaker, female filmmakers will be talking about just kind of have to take the projects they're given and don't have as much uh, agency to kind of mold their, their, uh, you know, the way that, that someone like Tarantino talks about his portfolio and how it all fits together perfectly. Uh, they just don't have that luxury. Yeah. No, like today's episode, we're talking about Deborah Granick and, uh, Deborah Granick is someone that I've been a fan of for a while and she's always, I think I read in one of the, the, the interviews I, I read of her, she's like, Every one of my movies, or at least the last two, are like considered like they're they're comeback narratives. It's like, oh, Deborah Granick's back to another movie, but because it's, it's like it's so, there's such big gaps in between. But as she kind of said, she's like, oh, I've been working consistently. It's just nothing's getting made. Mm-hmm. Like when you read the the list of like movies she's tried to adapt from books or kind of documentaries, like I feel like every interview I read of her, she's working on another project at that time that has never come to light. And with Granick's kind of career, I wonder if it's like timing wise, if she's like six to six to eight years later, what is her career? Because Mm -hmm. when watching a lot of her stuff this past or this past week, there's some similarities I'll, I'll bring up later in the episode of like what type of career I think she could have. Cause there are filmmakers that I think are interested in similar things that she's interested in, but may not the exact same point of view that are like making movies consistently today. But yeah, it's like it kind of, there's certain directors that have kind of broke the mold in their eras. I think of someone like Penny Marshall as an example, we've talked about on the show early on. We talked about league of their own of like how she was the first female filmmaker to direct two movies that made over a hundred million dollars, at the U S box office. Um, then there's someone that you think of, with say Catherine Bigelow, who's someone who's directs in a very, I feel like male dominated genres a lot of the time with things like point break or um, the hurt locker with war films. But she's also been able to take certain movies like zero dark 30 and have a female at the center of it, or even like blue steel with Jamie Lee Curtis. So it's like, she's someone that's kind of able to kind of break through that, that kind of barrier that was had, uh, there mm-hmm. was a, there was a big part of the nineties. It felt like with female filmmakers, um, and even just looking at that indie boom, we'll talk about the day, but the indie boom of the nineties, how there was Soderbergh and Kevin Smith and, and, and Tarantino, but there are also film female filmmakers like Alison Anders, uh, who were popping up around the same time, but just didn't have that same push, um, in their career as, as, as those directors yeah. did. Um, I do want to shout out a couple of people that I really admire who kind of work specifically in television that uh, might not get as much recommendation, you know, recognition. Um, One person is Mimi Leader, who is kind of a classic story that we'll hear a little bit about this this month, but was someone who was making big budget blockbusters in the 90s and and had a flop Um, for her. It was uh, pay it forward the you know, mm-hmm. Haley Joel right. Osment uh, Kevin Spacey film and and went to movie jail um, which is a very common uh, hap- you know, movie jail happens a lot for directors but oftentimes you just see that male directors are bailed out of movie jail a lot faster than female directors you know Mimi Leader did you know she had done Deep Impact before she did pay it forward but yeah. you know, then she had not, you know, then she 
got banished to the TV world, but she's someone who has really, really done incredible television. She did a lot of um, a lot of the leftovers and um, yeah. has, has worked with uh, has worked with HBO on a lot of their stuff. Um, really, really great stuff. So uh, and and um, someone someone I've, I've worked with specifically who is just kind of in, incredible to watch work is uh, Pamela Fryman. She's a she's like a multicam director. She did like almost every single episode of How I Met Your Mother and really pioneered that style of um, kind of hybrid where you are shooting some stuff multicam in front of a live audience. But then you're also going outside and doing other yeah. stuff, um, you know, on a on a back lot or, or that sort yeah. of thing. And she works like crazy. It's insane. At one point I was working on a pilot season and she was directing, we had like nine pilots up and she was directing three of them. Uh, so really, really incredible. Yeah. It's and t and that's what kind of happened. I think with a lot of female filmmakers of the nineties is I think a lot of them have kind of gone into television uh, of late. That's why I'm honestly surprised when looking at Deborah Granick today, she had that TV pilot at HBO um, it was like a, it was a, a like a young woman who's it's, it lives in a small town. It's like kind of going through like uh, financial issues in like a midwestern town is what it is. Uh, and that didn't get picked up. And you, you wonder like why hasn't someone like Granick been able to kind of like land a, an HBO deal or a Netflix mm -hmm. like something to get like a show off the grid? Because I feel like I mean maybe I'm wrong like with her like these kind of rural stories that she tells. He's kind of these these uh people on like kind of on the margins of society, I feel like would really work in the current TV landscape. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, granted to, to kind of go into that um, and we'll mention, we'll probably mention various female filmmakers this entire uh, month. Another big one that, that I think is, is influential that just passed away a few years ago is Agnes Farda out of the French new wave mm -hmm. um, of how influential she was in that movement until she and how she is today but yeah so with granite like I, i've been aware of her stuff for a bit like really since winter's bone mm -hmm. was kind of the thing like it was like oh she made winter's bone and then like you just never heard from her <laughs> for like eight years and it was like when is she doing something else um and she was one she's made three narrative features and we'll talk about all three today with down to the bone winter's bone and then leave no trace um she also made a documentary called stray dog as well but uh she was one when i worked at the video store in la cinephile we have a director's wall there and they sometimes are they, they like to switch how many movies you should have to get on the wall mm -hmm. a lot of times like, sometimes like oh you have to have have three good ones three good ones that's like oh you have to have four good ones it's like, <laughs> oh you have to have five good ones and i was like guys if we're just doing that, we got to take some people down. Um, <laughs> yeah. If, if, if good is your, uh, is yeah. your definition. Or, or, or no, great. I think someone would say great. Someone's like, oh, you have to be five great movies. Like, Dude, if you make just two great movies, that's a difficult feat yeah. in itself. Yeah. Um, and they're like, oh, well, that person made that bad movie. I was like, look, if we start naming off bad movies of good directors, we're going to be in trouble. Um, but anyway. So, but, but Granick was the first one where I didn't say it. I always felt about, I was like, oh, they're never gonna let me do it because like, she's only made three movies and my buddy, Matt, he goes, I think we should add Deborah Granick to the wall. And I was like, yes. And I was like off my feet going around the store to get her movies to like create the section. Yeah. 
especially with with someone like Granick, which we're gonna we'll, we'll talk about today of of anyone this month that we're going to talk about. I think she has the most consistent yes work where you can. I think it would be helpful if someone came in and they took Winter's Bone, they went home, they watched it, they came back, they loved it. You can very easily say you should watch the rest of her movies if you like mm-hmm. Winter's Bone. Very easy to say, and so I think that definitely warrants putting them all three together on a shelf where someone can get to them i agree completely and because she is very much this regional filmmaker all different regions like when you look at it you go okay down to the bones like upstate new york mm-hmm. um with with winter's bone it's it's like ozarks like like mountain people either they're shot in missouri but you could be kentucky or west virginia or kind of wherever um and then you get some that leave no trace which is like pacific northwest mm-hmm. um but the thing is about all three of them they are regional settings but they are i think very universal stories yeah it's like down the bones about addiction um winter's bone is is kind of it's i mean it's really just i mean winter's bone and leave no trace are very like both survival films in a way but different types of survival and in both cases kind of these odd parental relationships as well being kind of explored mm-hmm. um with winter's bone kind of the lack of parental relationships and how jennifer lawrence's character as the parent to these two kids um but also trying to solve the, like sins of the father essentially in winter's bone um and leave no trace is kind of this like with ben foster's character a a flawed parental relationship but it's like he's a person that cares about his daughter um so it's an interesting kind of she's exploring a lot of stuff in these three movies that I think are very relatable and somewhat surprising that like she as a filmmaker in the industry hasn't hit as much as say some other filmmakers have of late. Yeah. Um, so let's get into kind of Granick's early beginnings. So, uh, Deborah Granick was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts to her, to her mother, Brenda Granick Sussman, and her father, William R. Granick. Her father was an attorney that worked for the Housing of Urban Development that litigated fair housing in the country. Uh, Granick grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. because of her father's work. Um, her parents would later uh, get divorced. Her grandfather, Ted Granick, was actually a forerunner in broadcasting because he hosted the panel discussion show The American Forum of the Air, which ran on radio and then on television from 1934 to 1956. In 1985, uh, Deborah received her B.A. in political science at Brandeis University in Massachusetts. While studying at Brandeis, she also took classes and workshops at Massachusetts College of Art. There, she began taking film classes and production workshops. It was around this time that she began volunteering at a grassroots filmmaking organization out of Boston called Women's Video Collective. There, she began recording the protests and vigils that were being held around the area. Uh, Grant has described herself as a feminist and her mother was one as well. And Deborah said that she was involved in various protests at the time regarding women's rights and also America's involvement in Central America during her time at Brandeis and then kind of post that. In the late 1980s and early 1950s, Deborah began working on several documentaries and even worked on a five part, five part satirical lesbian soap opera called Two and Twenty, which apparently now has a very like loyal cult following of some kind. Mm. Um, she, I don't know if she directed it, but she co- said she collaborated with another director on it. 
Uh, while she was working at this time, she began to see an explosion of indie film talent popping up kind of everywhere in the country with actor Soderbergh's kind of sex lies and videotape, which kind of spurred this indie American indie boom uh, in 1989. And with the rise of Sundance Film Festival, the floodgates kind of opened for filmmakers where you can make movies anywhere about kind of any like your personal story. Um, and Granick also saw this and the rise of such indie female filmmakers as Jan Campion and Susan Settleman uh, that were kind of popping up in the 80s and into the 90s. And Granick realized she wanted she wanted or needed more structure in terms of her filmmaking and decided to attend film school. Uh, and she attended NYU's Tisch School of Tisch School of Arts, uh, which is one of the, the world's countries and kind of one of the world's best film programs. Uh, she would receive her MFA there in 2001. Um, there's where she learned about post-World War II European neorealist neo films. And I think Granick, when looking at kind of her influences, she kind of states how she was very influenced. She's very influenced by international directors. If it's English directors like Mike Lee and Ken Loach, uh, directors like the Darden brothers. Um, mm. She has this very kind of European, like oddly European style in moments. Um, a lot of observing, which I think is more uh, prevalent in, in that those early European films of those eras. Um, during her time at NYU, she created a short film called Snake Feed in 1997. It started off as a short documentary uh, about a few people that she had met, and then it was turned into a narrative short. Granick would then soon submit that short to the Sundance Labs, where she was able to workshop the short and turn it into a feature film. And that short film would turn to her directorial, de directorial debut, Down to the Bone, which was released in 2004. So, Thomas, what is Down to the Bone about? It's about a, uh, a kind of lower class suburban mother played by Vera Farmiga, yep. uh, who has two, raise, is raising two sons, is in a very kind of bland marriage, and is... And is addicted to cocaine. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's an interesting addiction story mm -hmm. because Granick touched on something um, that I've never really seen before, and her and uh, this movie was also produced by Anne Rossellini, who is one of Granick's kind of frequent collaborator collaborators. But um, it, it shows how she's doing cocaine for a while, uh, and you see her how she's like she's functioning i guess you could say mm -hmm. and how like once after she gets out of rehab and she's off of it people start like she's like less functioning like she yeah. starts getting complaints from work and it's like because even when she gets interviewed by kind of the guy who's like the rehab kind of coordinator like he's like oh are you having issues with this no so like, all the things that usually happen with people of like issues at work or issues with family do kids know she's like she's basically saying no to all that stuff. And he's like, Oh, I don't know if you're actually addicted. <laughs> and she's like, no, I am like, and a great scene that just kind of showcases that it's the scene when she's taking her kids to go trick or treating at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing her dress up as a witch and all this. And it's like, very like, Oh, we're going to go trick or treating. And then she goes in the bathroom and like snorts cocaine. Just the, the juxtaposition of those images mm -hmm. <laughs> Are, are almost, I don't say shocking, but very um, uh, unexpected um, when you see it. And, and But also 
completely reveals who this character is, who Irene uh, is. Never tried to stop? Yeah, lots of times. Okay. Your employer knows where you are? Uh, I, it's that means I'm on vacation. Okay, so he doesn't know? No. Okay, so there's no problems at the job with your job performance or anything like that? No. no. Okay, good. No. Good. Children? Boys. How many? Two. They're aware of your drug use? this is going to work for you, right? We're going to have to be very straight with each other, right? So it's like, it's a little hard for me to piece together that you use coke and that there's no employment problems, that it's not a big problem in your life, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot of drug use for a lot of years. might be surprised what your kids are aware of you know i actually never seen this movie before this episode because it was also kind of always one hard to find i find i rented it from cinephile um it's a very early digital movie like, yeah like it's it's yeah which like at the I, it's weird i'm now like i start to kind of like that aesthetic more as time has gone on because i see it way less does that make sense yeah. Like it's still, it's still like very much of an era. Is the it? Thing. It definitely bumped me out of it when it started, but by the yeah. end of it, I I was just taking it in. But yeah, it looks like you're, you know, it looks like you shot it on a mini DV for your home video. Um, another one that that uh, what's the one, what's the Katie Holmes one? Pieces of April. Pieces of April. That's the one that's always on every DVD of the mid two thousands. Yeah. Every indie film is promoting Pieces of April. But it, it, that looks the same way. I tried to watch that sometime during quarantine, and I was like, "Oh man, this looks this is so digital." <laughs> it's a warm feeling, you know. It reminds me of a time. Those no, I will say nothing about Down to the Bone is warm. It is, that is that's, a that's cold fair. movie. It's a cold movie, even in how it's shot. Um, but but this movie establishes a lot of things for for Granick's uh, career. Also, just kind of her narratives in a way. Uh, and I mean press narratives of like kind of the plucking a young uh, or undiscovered actress, yep. and Deborah then just Manic right after is a star maker. Period. She really is. She period. is three for three. Yeah, uh, as far as her casting has gone, and and picking someone who is fairly unknown, and them it's about going to pop. because yeah. it's like uh, Vera Farmiga does this, and then like departed. Two years later, I think is what it is. And then right after that, it's like, that's 06, I think. And then like up in the air is 09. And after mm. that, it's like whatever she wants to do type feels like. Lawrence is the same thing where it's like it's Winter's Bone. And it's like, I mean, it was immediate games. after Winter's Bone. It, like the the buzz was like, bam. Yeah. Really a, a crazy buzz. Is, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it when we get to that movie. But for for an indie film, a lot of buzz. Yeah. but then, And then like Leave No Trace with Thomason. Thomas McKenzie, where she does that, and then like right after that, it's bam, Jojo Rabbit is mm -hmm. the thing, and then now she's doing Last Night in Soho for Edgar Wright, and old with M Night Shyamalan, and all yeah, that just came out as well. Um, so it's like yeah, it's like she really has phen a phenomenal eye for casting. 
mm-hmm. and just is able to and and able to get just performances where like I feel like once I mean I we we won't know with McKenzie, but with Lawrence and Farmiga, it's like we never have really seen a performance like this from them again. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Like it's very much like they do this thing and then they go on to something else and haven't fully revisited this like more but this is also just indie film in a way. This is more of an indie film story. Um yeah. but they're very regional. I mean regional's gonna be said a lot in this episode. <laughs> uh but like but yeah, with with Down the Bone, it's like it also sets up I talk about kind of pl- plucking stars, but sets up her eye not just for casting big stars, but how to use real people in roles yeah Yeah, i especially going back to to rewatch her stuff this week i i was really struck by that and um speaking of another female filmmaker it feels like chloe Zhao kind of owes her like it's kind of in the same vein as her in the way that that you can tell that somebody in their movie is a real person but it doesn't pull you out they're not giving a bad performance they're just giving a very real performance and it really, I think, helps the films. I my my, I have a favorite in like all all three of her movies. I have my favorite, just like real person performance. But Who's in this guy? one, the guy, yeah, yeah. the guy in the snake store, is amazing. And oh yeah, you're just like this guy loves snakes. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, this is the mama. I want I want to have her like to get, get retire and have just a fun have a, have a good life. Like she's yeah. made so many like, babies. As long for as your me kids don't pull on her, tug on her, she won't bite you. She's never bitten me before. Let me just show you a couple of different animals I have here, and let me see what tickles your fancy. How about that? Are they good with kids? Corn snakes? I wouldn't give you nothing that would bite your kids. After all, I'd be liable for it. So, you want to take a look? This is a full adult here. Can you back up a little bit, please? This is about the size of an adult corn snake gets. And I think that's a perfect size snake. Not too big, not too small. Uh-huh. I think I got a perfect animal for you. His mother. I don't need her no more. I've got a lot of babies off her. She's a good animal. I like her to see her get a nice home and retire. Nothing could be better to have with two nice kids, giving it lots of love and affection. Isn't she beautiful? She's a yeah, good... she's gorgeous. She's a big animal, too. And look how pretty, you know, you can see she don't bite. Mm. See, I go by her face, how she ducks away. Perfect for the kids. So long as they don't pull her or tease and torment, she shouldn't bite. I never had her bite me once. So it's funny you bring up Chloe Zhao, because that's that's exactly what I was thinking when watching these films. I this, Here's what I actually thought, specifically when Winter's Bone, but even Down in the Bone as well. Because why, why I think that's very different from Granite to Zhao, and not a knock on the movies that she's made, because I think her movies are, are amazing, is that Granick's movies have a little bit more plot to them. Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of see it's not as it's not as wandering, but there is like wandering to it, but there is a very set structure within it that we're going. Even for Down to the Bone, which is an addiction story, there is a structure to it. Um, there's something that's propping it up, and that makes it a little bit more accessible, I think, to more mainstream audiences that, that maybe some of his jow stuff is. So what I, here's the thing I was making the analogy I was thinking, I was like, Granite feels like if she wants to, she is a mix between like Chloe Zhao and then Taylor Sheridan is my kind of mm. thought. Yeah. Um, not, not as fully genre driven as Sheridan is, but in terms of like regional, both are regional directors, like regional filmmakers with Zhao uh, and Taylor Sheridan. Sheridan's the more plot driven one. And Zhao's the more character-driven one. 
And I feel like Granick is this perfect blend of both of them. Yeah. Where they're both story centric, but also character centric. I can see that for sure. That's why I said she's a few years too early. You look at the filmmakers of share of the film, uh, careers of Sheridan and Zhao. It's like Sheridan is like, he writes a movie, it gets made. It kind of feels like, I know it's not the case, but like, or at this point, he writes rem- a spinoff of Yellowstone. Sp- it gets made <laughs> of Yellowstone. Yeah. It's like, t- and he, and he has this kind of like playground with Yellowstone or Zhao is like, cool. I'm going to win for Nomadland. And I'm going to go do a Marvel film. Like, it's like if and Granick, I don't know if she'd be interested in doing all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to see like if she's a few more years later, what happens? Because like Winter's Bone is kind of the hell or high water of its day. Yeah. When you think yeah. about it, it's like it's like an indie film, regional indie, not indie film, but like a, re, a regional film that comes out of nowhere, doesn't gross. It grosses a lot of money for its budget, but not a lot compared to the other movies being nominated. But then somehow gets nominated for Best Picture. Yep. um and so i but yeah so but wait, let, we'll backtrack because we're, we're skipping around down to the bone um what are some other scenes that, that, that like kind of popped out at you when watching down to the bone uh the scene in which she is confronted at her job about why she's not as as yeah as fast is is like kind of comedic but also devastating uh they're basically like after she's gotten clean and has worked like very you've seen how hard she's worked to be clean they call her in to the boss's office and they're like hey you're not as fast at the checkout line anymore what's going on and she's like no it's it's nothing and they're like you can tell us it's okay you can tell us if if not we're gonna write you up yeah yeah we're gonna write you up if you don't tell us but if there's something going on in your personal life you can be open with us and she's like okay i'm i got clean the reason i was so fast before was because i was high on coke and they're like, oh, OK, well, we have to fire you because now you've told us that you were doing coke at work. And yeah, she's, you like, have a, we, you, she's <laughs> like, wait, this is what you want. <laughs> yeah, this is what you told me to do. And then it's like now I have to figure out something else to do in my life. Um, But yeah, it's just it's a really solid. Yeah, that scene, I think of like the scene when a little bit of a spoiler here, Um, but like when she's she starts having an affair with with essentially the guy she meets at her like she meets on like halloween night or whatever but like he's a nurse at the at the rehab clinic but like when they start kind of having their affair and like he starts using again like mm-hmm. that scene in like when she, like when she like realizes it and like confronts him and then leaves and comes back like farming is amazing in this movie like she mm-hmm. really is and really is able to show the struggle uh that an addict has and that's why i like about this this, like addiction stories some can just be like they're doing like they're doing drugs all the time uh they're they're falling off the wagon all the time but the conflict really is like the whole conflict of addiction story is will they fall off the wagon Mm -hmm. and so that's the constant and and they're gonna have like maybe one or so setbacks um and the big thing is that you have to toss all these obstacles at them to make them want to use again. And I think Grant does this very well of like showcasing what it's like kind of being in like relationships with people who were essentially um, users as well. It's like, she has her husband who like, he's not a, a, a addict as much as she is, but like, he's still like, smokes weed and like snorts like snort stuff basically cocaine or whatever it is or, or methadone um 
So it's a very like kind of toxic environment for her. And then when she finds the person that could help her be clean, that guy ends up like feeling, oh, I have to use like make my, to make it feel even better than with her. It's just a very odd thing, but the, it 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 captures kind of the uh, the the choices that an addict will make, mm-hmm. uh, essentially in the movie. Oh, please talk to me. Talk? Were you ever clean? Were you fucking bullshitting me the whole time? I don't know what happened. I hadn't done a bag in five years. I hit the city, and for that split second, I was gone. You know, I just, I just want to enjoy being with you. I just wanted this to be really good. It was good. I thought it was fucking great. So with the release of Down to the Bone, it gets released. uh, It goes Sundance January 2004. doesn't get released in the U.S. till November 2005. So almost two years later. It would receive a limited release in New York and L.A. uh, And then it would essentially gross $43,000 worldwide. That's all it made at the box office. Wow. Um, But it currently sits at a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. And with the average rating of 7.7 out of 10. So what would happen at Sundance Film Festival, it was nominated for directing for Deborah Granick for drama. Uh, a grand jury prize, which is not win, but Granick won for best directing and Farmiga won a special jury prize for acting at Sundance. So definitely after this, they're like, they're on people's radars. Farmiga gets yeah. an indie spirit nomination for best female lead. So it, yeah. it plays well at festivals. Yeah. But I, I think it was uh, one of the reviews that we read kind of leading into this. I, th- I think that was in variety was like, this is a incredible movie. It's not going to play outside of Sundance, like outside of yeah, yeah it, festivals. It's just not. There's, it's like it's gonna. T- it would take a lot of work to find the audience for this movie and to market it to that specific audience. And I just don't think anyone's capable of it. And it that that appears to be the case okay. as far as the box office went. Do you do you think? Because I don't know. I mean, it's with some of these. We're playing hypotheticals. If that movie comes out, say three years ago, how do you think it does? Um, I think it would have a better chance. I think we do have more as far as like getting distributed. I think we do have a, more options as far as indie distributors go that that might buy it. Um, especially since kind of uh, I don't want to credit everything to a twenty four, but but a lot of people have kind of bumped up their game as far as like indie acquisitions go because a24 has proven so successful with it um so i I think they might have had a little bit more of a shot it did fall in that weird period because like you said earlier with the with the late 80s early 90s there was that huge indie boom and it was because of vhs sales and you could yeah the way people talk about I, you know, I was I, I had VHSs. I wasn't aware of the, the economic impact of them at that point. But the way people talk about printing VHS tapes, it was like people will buy anything on VHS. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and for a little while, DVDs kind of work that way. But it, it, it that that mode of like, I'm going to buy this indie movie and put it out on VHS because I will make money, period. That that went away yeah. in like the late 90s. And that's when obviously the Weinsteins figured out that the the money was actually in Oscars um, at that point. But 
yeah, the, down to the bone kind of hit in that weird period where people weren't doing that anymore. Like the DVD, indie DVD releases weren't that big of a deal. No, and, yeah. and so just having a indie movie that was successful at festivals didn't mean anything for you necessarily if if you couldn't turn it over into theaters i do think now with with streaming with with all these distributors yeah maybe it would have had a little bit more of a shot or, or even around the time of winter's bone um but it's still it's not as user-friendly as winter's bone winter's bone is still that. here like which we can we can uh we, we, we can transition we to that to it. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more. It's her most plot driven film for sure. It is. Um, it is. It, it plays out a little bit like a it, it, it's very understated, but it does play out like a little bit like a crime thriller. So, yes, I think that's kind of why it was able to drum up as much as much buzz as it was, because everyone loves everyone loves to say like, oh, my gosh, I saw the new breakout indie movie. But everyone also likes to have a little bit more plot to, yeah, <laughs> to their to as far as general audiences go. If you can if you can hand general audiences a movie and say this is a well respected indie art house movie, but also it's exciting and it, you know it's going to keep you on the edge of your seat, then then you're good. You're set. Oh yeah, and and that's this movie. It really has that. That's why I kind of say like uh, Taylor Sheridan a little bit is that like because this has a plot, it feels like it would be in the vein of a hell or high water or mm. um, uh, in a vein of wind river. It, it, it very much has that feel to it. Um, and so winter's bone. So damn the bone comes out in 2004. Winter's bone doesn't come out until 2010. So six full years later. Um, and Granick would direct it co-write it again with Anne Rossellini who we mentioned before and this would be an adaptation of a book written by Dan Woodrell um and essentially it's about a takes place in rural uh, rural Missouri in the Ozarks where this young 17 year old girl Reed Dolly uh looks after her mother and her two young siblings uh, uh a 12 year old brother and a 6 year old sister and they kind of live in like the backwoods of the Ozarks and uh, she has to kind of fend for herself and fend for her family. And they're on rough times financially. Her father's kind of disappeared. He's a, he's a meth, uh, a meth cooker essentially. And mm -hmm. what she finds out is that he's out on bail, but he's gone missing. And if he misses his court date, um, the, the collateral he put the bond, he kind of he put against his bond was the deed to the house and their land. And so, re played by Jennifer Lawrence has to go and find her father uh, in this kind of, again, this backwoods Missouri area where there's a lot more than just meets the eye. And there is kind of this criminal aspect uh, and darkness to the area. And so she seeks help from her, her uncle, her kind of rough uncle teardrop played by the amazing John Hawks, who was, who was fantastic as teardrop. I've, mm -hmm. Teardrop, I just love like just as as a character, like he is such a like vicious character, but then like is also caring. It's such an odd dynamic. Well, and I, I remember when this movie came out, the only thing I knew John Hawks from uh, Deadwood, where he plays like the like 
great yeah. guy but like the wimpiest guy in deadwood the wimpiest dude. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, he, he's like the only one that's like really straightforward in that town so i remember like early reviews coming out of this movie and people being like whoever this john hawks guy is he's terrifying in this movie and yeah. i was like oh what <laughs> no it's like this again it's this the scene again but like it's so i hate to say this but so like realistic his character is so realistic so anyway she seeks the help of teardrop to try and find out what her father where her father is he like the scene the scene that always pops out to me is like when you first meet him and when re goes to to teardrop asking help to find her father if he knows like where she is or where he is and like Mm -hmm. his wife says something like twice and he's like i told you shut up once and like I'm like, he there said, are yeah, people I, in the I world. I told you with my mouth or something man, like that. I told you with my like, mouth. Oh yeah. shit, this dude is straight yeah. up abusive. And he means it. That's the thing is that you know this character means that. Um, but then it's like he essentially like, it's the moment where Re keeps asking him, and he essentially grabs her and like threatens mm-hmm. her, and then walks out of the room, and then you hear a whispering, hear him whispering to his wife like, "Here, give her this. It's money." And it's just like this weird like how he has this very violent outburst and then right after it's like he's in this like weird caring mode of like hey tell her to go along don't ask any more questions here's some money um because like he knows something that she doesn't and he doesn't want her to get wrapped up in it and like to showcase because we're i'm gonna get on jennifer lawrence too with her performance it's, it's, it's also fantastic and amazing but the scene with teardrop that that pops into my mind as well is when she's been kind of kidnapped by the main crime boss, uh, thump mm-hmm. is what it is. And they beat and, and the women have beaten her up played by also the, uh, Dale Dickey, uh, as thump Milton's wife, or I guess one of his wives, I'm not entirely sure. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and she's like, and then they're in there and they're kind of having her like, like beaten up and there. And then you hear a truck pulls up, and it's t- and it's John Hawks and like one of those dudes like I'm not gonna be in his way when he gets in there. Yep. Yep. Everyone just bails. <laughs> and that and when that and that door opens up and he's just standing there. Oh God, that's like this dude means business. And how like this skinny kind of like almost probably like meth ridden dude. And all of them are kind of terrified of him. <laughs> like even Thump is kind of terrified of teardrop. What Jess had done was against our ways. He knew it, I know it. I ain't raised no stink at all about whatever became of him. But she ain't my brother. He's about all the close family I got left, so I'll be collecting her now, carrying her on out of here to home. That'd suit your thumb. You won't stand for her, are you? If she does wrong, you can put it on me. She's now yours to answer for. This is a girl who ain't gonna tell nobody nothing. You said earlier you, you have a favorite scene with every like non actor. I have an idea of who it might what it might be in this one. I the 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 military recruiter. The army is, guy. Yeah, the army recruiter. Yeah. 
he I, I love that guy that performance is so sincere. i think about that a lot i think about that he performance is a so lot. concerned about her and it makes me feel yeah. like kind of warm watching that scene <laughs> like, yeah you can tell he's, he's you can tell that actor is kind of nervous but like he comes across as so sincerely like empathetic and like concerned about her and the dialogue is, is so well written where he's got he's like you know i think think the real adventure might be you know staying here and taking care of your family and that guy i love that guy i love that scene that's one i've, I've pulled up on youtube before just to watch that scene yeah so apparently i don't know how true this is but i read that uh his lines weren't scripted and that lawrence just asked him questions in character and he responded as if he was talking to an actual recruit yeah kills it and it no it's again it's one i think about a lot um but i think but to go off that jeffrey lawrence is amazing in that scene mm-hmm. because yeah. lawrence's character what's so interesting she's built up because we we talked we actually watched this at, at usc mm-hmm. if you remember we took yep. we watched this and, and talked about story structure with it and talked about character actually too with her is that like it's kind of the side thing is that that re re dolly like just like wants to really go in the military like it's also kind of not just a dream to like have a check to send home to the family, but I think she really wants to join the military. Cause you see her like watching the like ROTC or the, uh, the um, drill team drill team. Yeah. The drill team. They do the kind of performance with it. She's watching kind of an amazement when she goes to the school to drop off the kids. Yeah. Um, well, and it also represent, you know, she, she, when he asked her, you know, why do you want to do this? She was like, kind of go places like it. Pro- that is probably her only chance to get out of that town, period. Would it be a problem getting mom and dad in here? I mean, I can come out to you guys' house. And... My mom's sick. My dad's gone. Well, do you have any brothers or sisters that might be able to help? I got a little brother, a little sister, 12 and 6. Well, who's taking care of them right now? I am. You are? Is that why you need the $40,000? Yes, sir. Well, it sounds like it might be a bigger challenge just to stay home, you know, and actually take care of your brother and sister because you know you're not going to be able to take them with you to training, right? I thought maybe I could. Not right at the beginning. Plus, you wouldn't be able to have them when you're actually in the active duty army because who's going to be there to take care of them if you had to go off and actually fight? So it sounds like right now you need to buckle up and stay home. It's going to take a lot of backbone and a lot of courage to stay home, but that, I think, is what you need to do right at this point. Okay? Now, something might change here in the next year or so. You might decide this is what you want to do, you know? But don't take it lightly and don't do it just for the money. You need to have a good reason to do this, okay? Okay. All right, well, it was nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. Have a good day, okay? Thank you. And then when that scene happens, it's just crushed. Mm-hmm. But it also sets up this idea of like how important she is to her family and sets up kind of her journey for the latter half of the film. So I think that happens around the middle of the film. I think when she's trying, because it's because like the shift kind of happens. This is what, again, plot driven of how well this is done plot wise. The first half of the film, she's just trying to find her dad and try to find a way to pay uh, for the the bond, like how much he needs he needs to put up for the bond. Right. Uh, so it's like they don't they can keep their house. And the midpoint is the court dates happen. He didn't show. They're gonna take the house, and it's now like she goes, "Well, he's dead. I know he's dead. 
And the latter half is her having to prove that her father's dead so he can keep the house. Because if he's dead, and that's why he didn't show up, then it's like null and void, basically. So because of that, the structure is there, is, is really there. Her character, which I think is what we talked about in class when we watched it, her character doesn't fully change. Exactly. Maybe she mm. kind of, I don't know if she, do you think her character changes in the end? Or is it just like she's on kind of this mission? Yeah, I think I think it's because I, I would say that like her strength is revealed, but it's not necessarily revealed to her as much as it's revealed to us. I think that's kind mm-hmm. of the the structure of the film is like showing us how far this sixteen year old girl can go. But I don't I don't know that with her character, I don't know that she ever doubted that she could go. That she has this convict this like strength of conviction that from the start she is just like I'm gonna do whatever it takes to to protect these kids. And uh, and so I think kind of the journey of the film is showing us and showing someone like Teardrop, like Dale Dickey's character, who just thinks she's this 16 year old that's poking her nose somewhere that she shouldn't. It's everyone yeah. else along with us seeing like this girl is a force of nature. Yeah, this girl's not going to stop because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're right, is that she's always active. Like she's never sitting down like, oh, no, what am I going to do to go find dad? It's like, what is she? The first thing she does is like. Let me go get a truck so I can drive around to go try to find where he is. And then it's like, okay, let me go to this person. Let me go to this person. And it just leads her down the rabbit hole. Um, and she's she's fine with confronting people. It's like it's like when she confronts Thump Milton, knowing she should not do it, but she's just like, I don't care. I don't care what, what he did. I just want to know if he's dead or not. That's the thing. She just like can't get across to anyone. She's like, I do yeah. not care. Can't kill him. I just <laughs> need to prove that he is dead. Yeah. And everyone's like, she's going to get us in trouble. And it's just like, no, I just need to keep my house. <laughs> just let me keep my house and go on. Yeah. No, one of, one of my favorite scenes. It's actually it's Tate Taylor, director Tate Taylor of the help. But uh, it's the scene when. When he's like, well, I'm gonna go search the house. And she goes, I know you'd be wasting your time and pissing me off. Like mm-hmm. just a perfect scene of that, of, of re in that moment. And you have like the neighbors watching behind her. Um, that dude who's like kind of always, uh, that dude's odd. That, that next door neighbor, like, yeah. is he involved? The neighbors in that like help him out, but are also like obviously in on the, on the crank yeah. cooking business. They're like, you're not going to exactly. say anything. Right. I think everything in this movie like really works. And I said, Lawrence really not her character's a force of nature, but she's also a force of nature. Just like this, the scenes that she does, she has, and it's very subtle compared to, it's not a knock on Jennifer Lawrence compared to many of Jennifer Lawrence's performances. Does that make sense? Well, I think that's, that's granite versus David O. Russell. (laughs) Um, yeah, as far as kind of the the direction she's been given, but yeah, nothing. Yeah. That, I mean, and this is Granick. Nothing about this film, nothing about any of her three films feels fake at all. So completely authentic from the settings to the characters to the you know uh, the people who are actual character actors like Dale Dickey versus these kind of like real people that she draws in. Like everything just feels authentic, and that's coming from someone who already knew Jennifer Lawrence as Bill Ingvall's daughter. Yes, I was a viewer. I didn't have cable. I, was a viewer. I only had 12 channels. TBS was one of them. I didn't have a lot of options, people. I did watch the Bill Ingvall show. I do. I, I also watched as well, so you're not the only one. No, there was there was a quote. I got to find it. 
um, that she said of she has a reviewer called me an authenticity freak. And she's like, I quite like that because she's very much like Granick really dives into the authenticity of these regions that she explores. Mm-hmm. Like the big thing with Winter's Bone is like she spent months in like the Ozarks, like with these people. Like that was a big thing that she did. And she talked about how and, and the hollers as they, as they call it. And she talked about how like they like she researched what how people were and like some of the stuff they had, like the skin, the squirrels, like that was something that people taught them to do while they were there. Um, and so she kind of just put all these things um, together in this film. And it was like just ha- like trying to showcase the struggles of like putting food on the table um, and kind of like dodging just like the, I mean, the, the bond, the bail, the bail bondsman, like it's very, again, relatable or realistic issues. And, but again, it shows again, it sh- the margins of these people on their margins on society of like the issues that these people have to go through day in and day out. It's very prominent in every single film. If it's addiction, if it's be- essentially being in a, a poor area of the country or a poor area of the city um, and what you have to do to survive. And then Lino Trace is kind of this like a veteran coming home or a veteran being home from war and kind of suffering from PTSD and what was provided for him. Um, it's a lot of, I think with these lat with Winter's Bone and Leave No Trace, it feels like characters that are forgotten, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. she's telling stories about people who are forgotten by the yeah, main, marginalized. By main Yeah, by, by society. Again, I'll bring up here too the way she, and I think she does this in all of her films, maybe not Leave No Trace. It kind of has, it might have a little bit of it, but the way she, with Winter's Bone and Down the Bone specifically, she has montages of the area to set the world up. Mm-hmm. of like upstate New York or uh, Ozarks. And then with the, or you kind of get the, 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 wood, the forest in a uh, Pacific Northwest with, with the lead to, with leave no trace. Um, but she has a great eye and a great knack for setting up the world. Look, I don't want to kick your dad's ass. All right. I just want to keep the judge off mine. Dad's dead. He didn't show for court cause he's lying dead somewhere. When was the last time you saw him? A couple weeks. Who's he running around with? Where are they all hanging out? He doesn't tell me that stuff, sir. Now, you know I got the legal right to go in there hunting the man any place I want. I know you'd be wasting your time and pissing me off. Jessup Dolly is dead. He's lying in a crappy grave somewhere, become piles of shit in a hog pen. Maybe he's been left out plain in the open. But wherever he is, he's there dead. And you know this, Hal. You must have heard what dollies are, ain't you, mister? Well, I've heard what some are anyhow, and I have bonded a few. I'm a dolly, bread and buttered. And that's how I know Dad's dead. So, Winter's Bone comes out, and it's, for her, is a big hit. It was, budget was $2 million, uh, and it makes around $16 million, possibly $20 million for uh, box office-wise. Universal, like critical praise all around, specifically for Lawrence's performance, but also uh, John Hawks uh, and kind of the entire cast. It's on top of many people's uh, top 10 lists of the year. Um, it currently stands at 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert 
as we talked about many times, gave it four out of four stars. Um, and kind of talks about what we've been talking about, how it, how it shows these people on the margins of society and talks about how great uh, Lawrence is. It would receive, it won the grand jury prize at Sundance and the best screenplay award at Sundance. It would be nominated for four Oscars, best adapted screenplay, best supporting actor for John Hawks, best actress Jennifer Lawrence, and then best picture. Um, and Lawrence would hit superstardom not long after. It's funny, I was reading in one of the interviews, Grant talks about how like after Hunger Games came out, they wanted her, they wanted to change the DVD cover of Winter's Bone to make it to where she looked more heroic in the movie. <laughs> they, she said they found the most aggressive squinty eyed shot of Jennifer and then photoshopped a gun into it. Oh, they say no. it's good, good for sales, but it wouldn't make me want to buy it is what she said. Um, it would also be the, when it was nominated for best picture, the lowest grossing movie since 1983 to be nominated for best picture. So still wow. a, a box office success in terms of budget wise, but, uh, surprising, for that era. But yeah. So 2010's for Winter's Bone. And then she doesn't make another film for eight years. With Leave No Trace in 2018. She's trying to make stuff the entire time. It sounds like. From HBO pilot as we said earlier. From several documentaries. She makes a documentary called Stray Dog. Which is released with independent lens. Uh, and then. she I think she tries to direct a few movies. I think she tries to adapt some books. But nothing really hits. Until Leave No Trace. And what is Leave No Trace about, Thomas? Yeah, so Leave No Trace is about a, a girl named Tom, played by Thomas and McKenzie, who was a newcomer at this point, uh, who lives with her father, uh, played by Ben Foster, in the woods out, somewhere outside of Portland on a, on a public park. Um, and they live, they, they camp out in the woods, they, they forage, they provide for themselves in the woods. And anytime they need anything, they go into Portland and we, we learn that he's a veteran and he sells all of his government issued like PTSD treatment for cash to, to fund anything else they need. But otherwise, they're completely self-sufficient out in the woods. Yeah. Uh, but one day and they run a lot of drills of how to be like not caught. But um, one day she is she's kind of careless uh, and they get caught and kind of processed into this the government system who's like, you know, you're not in trouble. We just want to make sure you guys are taken care of kind of yeah. rotated into like a government provided home. And it's, it's all kind of about the way that Ben Foster as, as this PTSD suffering veteran just does not feel comfortable in society period. And she and Tom is starting to hit this age where she is thinking that she does want to be back in society. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of, they're, they're very close they have a, a very overall very good relationship, but she's starting to hit this point where she's like, I, I want a normal life and you aren't providing that for me. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, do you think, because it's never fully said, how long do you think they've been in this type of lifestyle? I feel like she's been in it for, for a long time. That's um, what I think, too. I feel like maybe he, he you know, she was like four or five or something. He took her and, and, and went on the run. Because she's playing like 13. The character's 13 years old. And like, I want, because I'm like, because she wouldn't know, like, what she's missing is kind of the thing. And that's why at mm -hmm. first she's like, oh, I don't want us to, like, be separated. I want us to go back to what we had before. 
And what happens is that she realizes, oh, like you said, oh, this is, I like this life. Let's really try to like make it work. And Foster's mm-hmm. just like, no, like he's like, you just can't do it. And that's kind of the conflict. So she's not even upset. She's not even upset that he, he can't do it. She's upset that he's not even like trying to yeah. make it work. That's mm-hmm. what upsets her. And it's this interesting thing of just like, I mean, like of this parenting thing of like how it's like he, like the things that he wants versus what his daughter wants. And you start to slowly see how much, like I said, how she enjoys living, like having friends and meeting mm-hmm. people and doing things. Um, when he's like all about just like living away from this society as a way of like protection, that's kind of, it's, it's almost like it's, it's a protective uh, way to, to live, to live outside of that. But again, also a fantastic film and also very Deborah Granick, like mm-hmm. top to bottom uh, with the regional aspect of it, with these marginalized people also just again, like making statements on society in some way uh, about these people. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking scenes to me, or there's several of them in this movie, but one that really hits me is when Ben Foster's doing the test, when Will's doing the test at the computer. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's replaying the questions to him of just like, do you do you have nightmares or whatever? Do you feel do you safe wake up about in the morning this? feeling rested? And yeah, yeah. Do you, and it's like, do you have uh, thoughts about ending your life or what? It's like things like that. But yeah, it's like, or do do you think you'll have time to accomplish all your goals? But it's that moment when like one of them happens and he like pauses and it's the beep that he didn't answer fast enough because you have a certain amount of time to answer. And it's just you see him like really begin to kind of crumble. Yeah, and they, they kind of they cut away. And when they cut back, he's just got his heads in his head in his hands. Like, yeah, just not answering at all. Yeah. And yeah. And the mic and the, and the head stays wearing is off and you're just hearing the beeps going on because he's not answering. And it's just it's it's a hard. But yeah, the Foster in this movie is amazing. And we talked about a little bit with Hawks and how she was kind of able to showcase a side of Hawks we hadn't seen before because he was not known for that type of character actor performance. Foster, however, was more of a name and more mm-hmm. recognizable. This is, po- this is post Hell or High Water. But you still see a different side of Foster that we haven't really seen that much before. It's like he's Foster with Hell or High Water. I think of that I think of a uh, 310 to Yuma. I think of Hostiles a little bit when he's in there. Like he's a he plays characters. They're like full of anger and you're just like waiting to see them explode and they finally I mean, do the the first thing i ever saw ben foster in uh was a it was a showtime film that used to get shown in my school a lot i think my school had like a dvd copy of it um but it was a filmed version of a play called bang bang you're dead that was very famous that like toured high schools and was like about a school shooter and uh-huh. um that was the first thing I ever saw him in. And he played a, a school shooter in it. And, um, yeah, because uh, he was, he was kind of like a, he was a teen actor. He had, um, yeah, he, did that, he popped that Tim up, Allen, he, uh, movie, <laughs> big trouble. Was that, you, you ever see that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is, uh, is Renee Russo in that movie? Yeah. 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 I saw that movie, but he's all, he's also in get over it with Kirsten Dunst and Cisco. You know that one? I, or it's, I haven't it's, seen it's, that one. Okay, yeah, that's like ten things ahead about you, but it's a uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is what it is. Oh, okay. And he was in X Men: The Last Stand. X three. Oh yeah, he was. He's the what's the character like the the, the an- angel? The ar- yeah, the, the angel. The, the angel wings. 
yeah, I forgot he's in that. Um, but I think the the movie that really like puts him like where he like becomes this is the character he's gonna play is three ten to Yuma. Yeah, like that's mm-hmm. like it feels like after that it's like that's the character Ben Foster's gonna play. Uh, I mean, he was in Freaks and Geeks as well. That se- yeah. season one, he, he was in that season as well. Mentally handicapped uh, high school student. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, but Hell- but three ten to Yuma kind of sets that up, and then Heller High Water kind of doubles down on it. But this is like, so you're taking all that anger. And I don't know if I'd say Will is an angry person. He just has very troubled memories that he bottles up that I think what makes him makes people worry that he could go off at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. But he never fully does. I think that's why he like likes to be away from everyone. So he doesn't have that. That fear doesn't happen or that of that doesn't happen for him. Respond true or false to each question. Um, it's voice activated, so you just say it right in the microphone. There's 435 questions. If you can't answer something, you got three seconds. It'll beep and move on to the next statement. There you go. Welcome. The test will begin in three seconds. I wake up rested and peaceful most mornings. True. I enjoy reading articles on crime. False. My day-to-day life is full of things that keep me interested. True. I have nightmares or troubling dreams. I think about things that are too bad to talk about. Things are turning out like the Prophet said they would. False. It seems like no one understands me. False. All of her movies and most of her scenes in all these films feel like you could pluck this from the area of the country. Mm-hmm. Like the moment, like the moments that are happening. It's the church moment. And and again, I love these kind of odd jobs that everyone does. It's like and and down to the bone, she works at like she works at the grocery store. But in this one, it's like they start living at the Christmas tree farm is what it mm-hmm. is. And you're, you're finding out about like what it is to cut Christmas trees down. Yeah. Um, and it's it's one of those things where, where specificity really kind of leads to the, the specificity of it lends a hand to the authenticity, authenticity of it. You know, like you, you, you've seen movies where someone goes and, and works on a farm but have you seen him on a Christmas tree farm? And then the, she gets yeah. into um, 4-H, specifically like rabbit, uh, rabbit husbandry through 4-H. Which yeah. You know, is a thing, but like never really seen that before <laughs> on film. In a movie. Yeah. Grant is interested in a lot of things that I can see. I mean, I can see people think that would not play mainstream wise, but I really do think the, the Chloe Zhao comparison is very, right because that's very much stuff that she does she aims for the specificity of her of her characters with nomadland being the prime example um and i think granick does a very similar thing in her films speaking of that this one i've I've actually got three yeah three scenes three scenes that are like real people that i just okay. think kill it okay what are your three scenes with this one well first off i do want to say i really appreciate deborah granick for letting dale dickey play 
a nice person in something because yeah, yeah, yeah. Dale Dickey yeah, yeah. is like always cast as like a crazy redneck woman and she's fantastic but but she's very she can be very warm and, and I love her in this movie she's very warm and um, sh- shout out to because Dale Dickey we talked about her briefly Tony Scott and Domino yeah obviously not not very warm in that when her son's arm had just been blown off with a shotgun um so she wasn't su- super happy about that one um but um the guy the guy she meets at the at the the vfw that's that's like giving oh, out the pamphlets the, the pamphlets yeah, the, 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 or, yeah. yeah. he's great yeah. love him yeah uh the truck driver <laughs> the truck driver gets mvp he's me. great he's, he's yeah he's, he's great. got that moment he's, where he's like i need to talk to the girl and like calls her over and he's got that great line where he just says um just says like i need to make sure i'm doing the right thing here and she's yeah. like you are you are um and then i just love he's like very suspicious but then they like just cut to like obviously much later on on the trip and, he's and they're just, driving yeah he's yeah. just chatting his, he's just happy to have somebody to talk to enjoy talking with you is yeah. what he said <laughs> uh and then the last is the is the veteran um combat medic that helps them out when they get to the um to kind of that that campsite towards the end and, and he's got that great scene about the his dog um that helps him with ptsd and then he <laughs> lets oh yeah he's like i think it'd be really nice if she came and stayed with you guys for a little while and that that's <laughs> that part really gets to me and then they've got it's that so, scene where they're so sitting sweet. out and, and ben foster starts to pet the dog and uh i great. mean it's it's again her another person i mean david gordon green did a lot of this early on in his career too of how he will put uh regular people in there and it, it really is it could be hit or miss yeah is the thing it can take it can 100 percent take you out and of it i don't think it ever does in any of her movies i think mm-hmm. and you said that kind of earlier like it really adds to the the world that she's building and that that is to create the environment for someone who obviously does not have a lot of performance background and i and, and that's what i tell a lot of people who uh, kind of ask about nomadland last year and they're like why was nomadland so impressive that is one of the director's jobs that gets overlooked is you know your job is to get the performances you want out of your actors if your cast are non-actors then it is very very difficult to set up a, a an environment to set those people up for success um yeah and so i think that is a sign of great talent from a director to to create an atmosphere and it's also a good sign of the you know in, in all of these examples and also in the example of nomadland they are also putting them in a scene with a very very talented actor um, yeah. and it's also a great credit to them as a scene partner to be able to kind of create that but yeah it's a it's a huge testament to the director to take real people who are sometimes very obviously nervous and, yeah. and just put them set them up for success and and deborah granick does it so well and not just like with like one care one one person popping up like no like pretty much the entire cast mm-hmm. <laughs> outside of your main leads are are just regular people is the thing and that's hard to do over and over again in just one movie and let alone a whole career of doing that successfully we broke down yeah Did you take us up the road a bit I'm going to give you a ride. I need to know a few things. Let me talk to the kid a minute. Over here. If you're in trouble here, 
Now would be a good time to tell me. My dad and I just really need a ride. Your dad. I just need to know I'm doing the right thing. You are. And Granick is a, is a really good observer. Um, I think she's, again, Zhao is someone who really observes where like, like no man land to me, like feels like a documentary in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, Granick, I think, except maybe down to the bone, I think with winter's bone and leave, leave no trace, you feel like you're watching. Like it's you're watching a movie. If that makes sense. Mm. Um, it doesn't always have a documentary feel to it. Down the bone kind of does. Um, but that's because of the way it's shot, the style of where it's shot. Uh, it's yep. very indie. It's very handheld. It's very digital. Uh, Leave No Trace is probably her most polished film in terms of aesthetics. It's a cult. It's also her warmest film because mm-hmm. the other two are very cold in terms yeah. of uh, tone, uh, in terms of like colors and tone. Um, and Leave No Trace is a very warm and uh, almost and vibrant film, which goes against the kind of the the subject matter but it really is and and she's had the same dp for all three all three movies michael mcdonough hmm any more things about leave no trace that you want to say that's the only of her films that i saw in theaters and um you you know it was the same feeling it it was a little bit earlier on for me you know winter's bone it it was i think up for oscars at the point that i finally saw it and so like i knew the jennifer lawrence buzz but yeah i think i saw Leave No Trace, like opening weekend, big Ben Foster fan and big yeah. Jennifer Granick fan. And it was one of those, she just came out and you're like, Thomas and McKenzie, boom. She's yeah. going places. She's going big. Yep. And so my thing with this movie, I would argue it's probably the most underrated film of 2018 because it received zero Oscar nominations. Um, it received three, it received three Indie Spirit Awards. Uh, didn't win any. It was nominated at National Board of Review. It was nominated for top 10 independent films of the year. Uh, and Thomas and McKenzie had a couple of like nominations at place, like film critics and stuff. But yeah. I saw that she was nominated for a bunch of like newcomer awards and lost all of them. And I was like, who in the world won 2018? 2018 was also when eighth grade came out. And oh. uh, uh, it was Elsie uh, yeah. Fisher. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. yeah. She, yeah, but so also, when I was, I was going back to look at these nominations, I was like, oh, holy shit, 2018 was a strong, strong movie year. Like we had, some, It's a strong year. We had some great movies that year. But I still think it's one of the most underrated movies of the year. Yeah. It's like, because that's the year, because that's the Star is Born year. Mm-hmm. And so that means Green Book wins oh. at Best Picture. <laughs> um, So like, so here's the thing. So I'm, I'm going to go with the Oscar nominations here. Here's what's nominated that year. And you tell me, I mean, I already know, but you tell me where Leave No Trace can fit in at. You have Green Book. You have Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, Vice. I'm fine to leave Green Book off of that list and swap in Leave No Trace for sure. And Bohemian Rhapsody, I would leave off that list for sure. So and so here's why I say that, why I say it's the most underrated film of the year. Leave No Trace is the most reviewed film to receive 100% from critics. Wow. It's not only it's the, like, the highest rated film because of reviews, but it's 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 100% on 
238 reviews. The next closest thing is Toy Story 2 with 169. So um, Leave No Trace is like one of those films where like somehow it's loved by many, but not appreciated by a lot. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like you would think with reviews that great that it would pull some sort of and with and also not just the reviews, but also the people in it with Foster, with Granick's back with back history with Winter's Bone. You would think the Oscars or or not even just the Oscars, but Golden Globes or Screen Actors or wherever, like, would kind of see this movie and like try to push it up in some way, but didn't. And I'm not entirely sure why. Um, the movie would only grow seven point seven million dollars uh, at the box office, but it landed on many people's top ten lists of the year. Um, from Hollywood Reporter, Vanity Fair, Guardian, critically loved, but it just didn't get a big release. And again, it was when it premiered at Sundance. So all three of her films have premiered at Sundance, and just Winter's Bones, the only one that's really truly hit. Mm-hmm. And even then, that only made twenty million dollars. <laughs> But Winter's Bone, to go off there real quick, Winter's Bone is always a movie. If people always ask me, what's the movie that you give people at the video store when I work there? Winter's Bone's that movie. Yep. I I feel like that's something that, like, that's going to be something different you haven't seen if you're from L.A. specifically. And the hope is that they kind of study that that filmmaker. Study Granick. What are you doing? Dad, you, your leg isn't even healed all the way. And it won't. It won't heal right. I don't want to leave. Last time you almost died. And you would have if I hadn't found you. That will never happen again. These people, they're not that different from us. Yes, they've been very good to us, but we have to... You! You need... Not me. Same thing that's wrong with you isn't wrong with me. I know. So let's go to let's go on to stats. Not much to really go off here because there's not many. <laughs> I think Dale Dickey is is the most appearances because she's in two movies. Yep. Um. So let's see. Out of these three films, what's the most popular film on Letterboxd? You think? Winter's Bone. No. It's Leave No Trace? Leave No Trace. I gotta remember that Letterboxd kids don't watch old movies. Actually, no, no, you're right. Sorry. Why Letterboxd, when I, when I did it, they, they screwed it up. So you are correct. Winter's Bone is the right. 88, I don't know why when I, when I sit, what Letterboxd does is sometimes where you'll sort it by a certain thing, but it doesn't put it in order. Hmm. Um, what it probably means is that more people logged it as a diary entry, Leave No Trace, then Winter's Bone, because Winter's Bone, I just play, I've watched it before. Does that mm. make sense? I think they judge yeah. sometimes on that. Anyway, Winter's Bone's at 88,000. Leave No Trace is at 67,000. Can you guess where Down to the Bone is? 8,000. No. Way lower. 2,000. 1,100. Wow. It's, it's tough to find. 
It's not. It's not really out. It there. is. It's a disc. It's a disc. I don't think it's on. I don't think it's on any streaming stuff actually. Now when I look at it. So, um, so if you have a video store nearby, go go rent it. Atlanta Video Drome, uh, L.A. Cinephile Video, and wherever you're else out. Good Austin. luck. Um, Austin, iHeart Video, I believe is where it at. It is. Uh, there's one in Portland for Ben. I don't know what it's called. He knows. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that is the popula- popularity rating. What do you think is the highest rated one? Winner's Bone? No. It's, leave no it trace. is leave no trace. Okay. Leave no trace with a three point seven. Winner's bone with three point five. Mm. I'm actually surprised Winner's mm. Bone is that low. Yeah. Uh, down the bone, three point four. I give all these movies four stars for me, and I think that is it on the stats. Okay, so to final director questions, is Granick an auteur? I think she is. I think looking yeah. ahead for this month, I think she might be the only one. <laughs> that that has that is taken the the you know the taken the steps to establish that i might be surprised as we get further on we'll see yeah um but but you know like we said a lot of times the female directors just kind of have to make the films that come their way because they don't get as many opportunities whereas granick is someone who it's taken a lot of time and she's not as prolific as maybe she deserves to be but she has very obviously put a lot of work into making the movies that she wants to make that are close to her. And, and that, and in that sense, she is able to, she has these three movies have definitely established what her voice as an auteur is and, and what her style as an auteur is. And, and when you watch all three of them together, it's unmistakable that like, this is what a Deborah Granick film is. The hope is, I mean, yeah, she's, I don't see her as, and maybe I'm wrong. Chloe Zhao's doing the Eternals, but like I don't see Deborah Grant going off and doing a Marvel film. But she said she said like if she finds something that interests her, she wouldn't turn it down. Is that she's mm-hmm. like she's aware like the stuff that I'm interested in is doesn't have a lot of mainstream appeal. It's hard to yeah. sell. But what I, what I again what I find so fascinating is that she doesn't have mainstream appeal. I guess you could say, but all of her films are again really well structured towards a mainstream style i think i mean mm-hmm. Winterbone being the prime example but like damn the bone it's like this happens at this moment like it's very well plotted for a film that's very character driven but no yes i would agree granick is is not tour because all of her films have a very specific feeling as we talked about and uh very fo- and 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 focus on they all have a, a very similar perspective, essentially. Yep. Um, because I didn't want to jump ahead with the next question. What are her running themes? Um, marginalized America, specifically female characters. Um, even though uh, I do think kind of leave no trace does put a lot of does shed a lot of light on on uh, veterans as well with um, Ben Foster's character, but uh, kind of lower lower class as far as means income yeah and and yeah these kind of like dark corners of america in the sense that it's not you know it's since down to the bone has come out i think we've become a lot more aware of how heavily like lower suburban america has been hit by prescription drug abuse Mm -hmm. um 
but but at the time that this movie came out, I I don't think a lot yeah, of people it's, it's, were, it's were kinda, talking it's about it's kind of ahead of its time in that. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of ahead of its time in that in that way. And and with something like and with Winter's Bone, there's not a lot of media out there in general just kind of about that area it's it's yeah. uh, it's often overlooked as far as american culture goes and then with with leave no trace that was based on uh it was based on a book but the book was based yeah. on the the author of the book read about this family that was discovered living in the woods that was in that situation yeah. so um you know all kind of real communities and so i don't want to say that they're like um, I don't know what the word would be, you know, like purpose films, like, you know, it, yeah, they're, they're not like you need to go out and, and do this, but it is saying like, you, you need to be aware that, that, that these, these people are living these, these types of lives and, and kind of giving you a, a personal insight into, you know, these, these people that are living lives completely outside of, of you or I. Yeah. Like it's not a, a message film, but the film has a message. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um i think also to uh, running themes may, may not themes but just st- style of, of again like using the the non-character non-actors yeah in in heavy roles mm-hmm. um not not heavy where they're like main characters but like you're gonna get a good scene with these people um and i think she also again it's it's this very she's really great at these intimate portraits yeah. like again it's like taking characters like or actors like john hawks like jennifer lawrence like ben foster uh like vera farmiga where it's like they're these very subtle performances and that could be in the direction that could be in the writing um she writes she is she she writes at some point with these scripts at some point so she is definitely a voice in the writing process as well um what was the other thing i wanted to say oh one thing not really spoilers but i don't want to go into it but one running thing that i see a lot of open endings mm-hmm. all three movies have leave you hanging just a little bit and some cases they leave you a little bit with the question and sometimes it's thought-provoking like i think winter's bone is very much like a oh god what's gonna happen next type thing or what's mm-hmm. what's this person gonna do um i think down the bone has a very similar thing as well, but what this was the specific character going to do now once this is over. Uh, and then leave no trace is kind of a very similar thing. It's this, the, the leaves you, uh, that one's the more emotional of the three of, of where you leave those two characters and where they're at in their lives and like what they're now doing. I think it's a little bit more, um, and it's a good callback to something else that happens earlier in the film. Um, but yeah, open endings is something that she's really good at doing. Uh, so what genres does Granick work with then? If there, if it really is a genre. Yeah. I don't know if I would call this like a slice of life film. Yeah. It's, it's a light, it, you know, that I think a slice of life film normally refers to, uh, a movie that kind of highlights the mundane, you know, it's like, this is a day in, in this person's life. Whereas this is a, it is a slice of life film, but it is also a kind of a, a vision into a life that many people would not be familiar with. Um, so yeah, somewhere, somewhere around in there, her own, it's, it's her own kind of Deborah Granick style of slice of life. Yeah. You get slice of life moments. If it's in winter's bone, like showing Jennifer Lawrence re re showing the, the, her uh, siblings how to shoot. Um, or if it's showing them how to like skin a squirrel and cook a squirrel, mm-hmm. 
Um, or if it's like just with leave no trace of like how, like covering the tracks or whatever. Um, it's these very kind of simple things. So this is, this is part of their life. It might not mean much to the plot of the movie, but this is part of this character's life. Yeah. I mean, like it's not really a genre, but like these, again, these rural kind of stories. And I don't know if it's rural, but regional stories is kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. If that would be a genre. So yeah, that's our episode on Deborah Granick. If you haven't seen any of her films or haven't seen all of her films, please go try and check them out if you can. I know Down the Bone will be kind of hard to find. Um, if you want to buy it off the DVD off Amazon, I don't know how much. I don't know if it's a, a rare DVD <laughs> or not. Um, but it, I think I think because it's done, it's done by like a weird distribution company. Like it's not a big distribution company that released that movie. So I think that might be why it's kind of like lost in the in the shuffle of that era of films. Because that that again, talking about DVDs of that era. It wasn't VHS stuff. There's a lot of DVD companies just printing off movies and buying stuff. And this is probably one of those. But yeah, go check out our films you can. And hopefully you are as big of a fan as we are. Um, so next week, Thomas, what are we talking about next week? Uh, we will be talking about Karen Kusama. Things are going to get a little weird. Things are going to get a little bloody. Things are going to get a little violent. <laughs> um she is a uh, a director who we will discuss. We'll talk about movie jail. She is she's someone who has yeah. kind of fought her way out of movie jail. So we'll we'll get the whole story on her experience and and, and look at her her works next week. Yeah, fought, fought out of movie jail, and then has I mean cult classics also help out tremendously with that. And I think she has found one mm-hmm. in this kind of. I guess Generation Z is that we, is that, is that TikTok, the name? Zoomers? TikTok generation TikTok, TikTok generations. Uh, one of her movies, Jennifer's Body, has very much taken the TikTok generation by storm. Um, so yeah, so that'll be next week. Yeah, Thomas and I we we each pick two directors per per for the month. Uh, I think we picked very different directors than like what people might expect. Mm-hmm. We didn't go for the. <laughs> We didn't go for the Agnes Varda, Catherine Bigelow's of the world. We're like, we're going to go with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are directors we love, and we hope you love them as well. So, yeah, um, that's all we have for you in this episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you have already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. We'd love to hear from you. It helps us get feedback from our audiences, it helps us gain visibility with other people out there. Even if you're, you know, even if you're recommending the show to your friends offline, drop a little review uh, yeah. online as well, and that'll boost our visibility to strangers. So, you know, you can help out on, on two different fronts. To our friends in Belgium and Switzerland, keep do, or Sweden, Switzerland too. Just review us there too. We'll yeah. see those as well. We'll get a I'm notification. Sorry. So- I'm sorry I made a Mamma Mia joke last month. I'm, I take <laughs> it back. But Belgium, you guys are strong. You guys have been downloading us for a bit. Um, but yeah, and if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We have to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.